This series begins not just a sermon series uh, that I've been teasing for quite a while, but really it is a a disciple-making strategy uh, that we will use as a church. Uh, Most churches do not do a good job of disciple-making, and I want to, I want to uh, try to remedy that uh, for ourselves. And uh, having a strategy that is biblical and one that uh, can help us reach the people in your world. You know, the song that we just sang on that bridge, it talks about God's goodness runs after us. It reminds me of the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son, he went his own way and he did his own thing. And when he finally came back to the father, uh, in that parable, Jesus says that the father was standing, looking a long way off, waiting for his son to return. It, It seems to me to be talking about God the father's heart for us. And how the father, once he saw that it was his son, it said that the father, Jesus told us that the father ran to the son, which is something that in that culture, uh, fathers don't run. Uh, The children might run, but fathers don't. It would be undignified for a father to run and embrace his wayward son. In that culture, what should have happened, according to custom, would have been for the father to stand there while the son made his way and groveled at his feet, asked for forgiveness, and begged to be able to return. But that's not what happened. Jesus said that the father ran to the prodigal son. And that song reminds me of that parable. You know, Jesus loved to teach in parables. Uh, Jesus uh, had a number of parables that he told. And and, uh, for example, in Matthew's gospel, there are 19 parables that Jesus told that he did not interpret that he did not interpret. Some of them are easy to understand, we think. We think they're sort of obvious, but Jesus did not explain them. Nineteen of them in Matthew's gospel alone. The new cloths and wineskins, the the parable of the lampstand, the parable of the wise and foolish builders, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus didn't explain that one. The parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl, The parable of the net with good and bad fish mixed in it. Jesus didn't explain any of those. The parable of the homeowner with new and old treasures. The parable of the wandering sheep. The parable of the unmerciful servant. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. Jesus didn't explain any of those. The parable of the two sons. The parable of the tenant. The parable of the wedding banquet. The parable of the fig tree. Jesus didn't explain any of those. The parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and the goats. We think we know what that stands for, but Jesus didn't explain it. All of those parables in Matthew's gospel, Jesus did not explain. There are two parables in Mark's gospel that are unique to Mark's gospel that are not found in Matthew or Luke that Jesus did not explain. And it would be the parable of the growing seed and the parable of the returning owner. And then in Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel, by the way, for you Bible trivia nuts, uh, Luke's gospel is the longest book in all of the New Testament. And in that very long book, 
Luke tells us 18 more parables that are unique to Luke that are only found in his gospel that Jesus did not explain. Jesus did not explain the parable of the moneylender, nor the parable of the rich fool, or the parable of the watchful servants. He didn't explain the parable of the wise and foolish servants, or the parable of the unfruitful fig tree, or the parable of the master and the servant. He didn't even explain the parable of the good Samaritan. We think we know what that means, but he didn't explain it. He didn't explain the parable of the friend uh, who sought bread, or the parable of the place of honor, the parable of the great banquet. He didn't explain the parable of counting the cost, or the parable of the lost sheep, or the parable of the lost coin, or even the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus didn't explain the parable of the shrewd manager. He didn't explain the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, although some people would say, well, that's not really a parable. You know, there are some signs that it might not be, but there are other signs it might be, but however you want to understand that, he didn't explain it. Jesus didn't explain the parable of the persistent widow or the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We have some 40 parables in the New Testament. Some might say, well, what about John's gospel? There are no, no parables in John's gospel. He was writing for a different purpose. But we have some 40 parables that are written for us in the, those three gospels. And of all of those parables, Jesus explained exactly one of them. And it's the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. I mean, if Jesus only explained one parable, then that parable must be pretty important, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? I would say so. In fact, this parable, and we know this because Jesus explained it, this parable talks about getting saved. And there may be no other more important subject than getting saved. In fact, the Bible talks about getting saved quite a bit. In fact, the Bible uses a lot of different analogies for people getting saved. You remember Jesus talking about fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of men. And so we have this fishing analogy of, uh, of, of getting saved and helping other people get saved. Jesus talked about us as soldiers. He said, the gates of Hades, of hell, will not overpower my church. It's the imagery of a soldier, that we are soldiers that are taking on the city called Hades, and we're tearing down the gates that protect, if you will, hell itself. And so we have this analogy of soldiers when we talk about getting saved. Jesus talked about the analogy of salt and light in the world. He has that analogy, and that's very unique. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that we are Christ's ambassadors. You're an ambassador. You might not be the ambassador to Luxembourg, but what would the ambassador to Luxembourg or Belgium or wherever else do? Well, what that person does is he represents the country 
called the United States, right? We are Christ ambassadors. We represent Christ. What an incredible concept. And so we have that analogy. We're, we're his ambassadors. You go back to, all the way back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 3. And we have this analogy of us being the watchman on the wall. And God says to us, warn them from me. And if you don't, they'll die in their sins, but their blood will be on your hands. Warn them from me. We are watchmen on the wall. But there's one analogy that God uses more in the Bible more than any other when the Bible talks about helping people get saved. And it's the analogy of farming. This analogy is used more than any other by Jesus himself and by God all throughout the Bible. For example, in Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, What an incredibly beautiful couple of verses here. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's the harvest. It's the harvest. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we read, For you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. So, if the one parable that Jesus explained is about being saved, and that parable happens to use the one analogy that God uses more than any other analogy about helping people get saved, then I believe that this parable is well-suited to help us as a church develop a strategy for this can happen where you can help the people in your world come to know Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Let me read this scripture to you. Now, when a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, He spoke by way of a parable. Here it is. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some some fell beside the road. And it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Another seed fell on the rock. And as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Another seed fell among the thorns. And when the thorns grew up with it, They choked it out. Another seed fell into the good soil. 
And growing up, it produced a crop 100 times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 9, And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables. So that seeing they may see, and hearing they, excuse me, seeing that they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. And those on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life and do not bear ripe fruit. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, this parable is fairly easy to understand. Why? Because Jesus told us the meaning. He told us what it means. And so basically in this parable, the, we have an illustration here. The, the parable, we have, we have seeds and we have soil, we have birds, we have rocks, we have thorns, we have fruit. All of these things. And I want to look at the elements of this story and... Let's look at it backwards, okay? Let's look at the fruit. I mean, that's the goal, right? The fruit is the goal. If there is a harvest, that means, by definition, there is fruit that comes from the seed. Fruit will be there. Fruit is a given. If the fruit comes up, it is a given. The fruit doesn't change in this story. And then you look at the thorns and the rocks and the birds, these are the things that are in the world. These are all things we have to deal with. The worries and the riches and the pleasures of life. Temptation. And even, even the devil himself. These are things in the world that we have to deal with. And these are things that the people that we want to be saved have to deal with. Now all of these things that we have to deal with. The thorns, the rocks, the birds... We can't stop those things. What I mean by that is they're ever-present in this world. They will be in this world until the Lord one day takes care of it all. But for now, these things don't change. They are here with us. The soil... That's where we will have to begin, and I'll explain where we'll, why we'll uh, have to begin there in a minute. And so we'll come back to the soil. But then at the top of this illustration, you have the seed. The seed is the Word of God. We know the seed doesn't change as well. So out of all of these elements, the seed, the soil, the birds, the rocks, the thorns, the fruit, 
Of all of these, there's one of these that's different. There's one element in this story that is different from person to person. It is the soil. It is people's hearts. People's hearts. You think about the people in your life. We all know people in our life who have a, they have a heart for God. They have a tender and precious heart. And they pursue God. Many of them are right here in this room right now. They pursue God. They love God. They have a heart for God. We also know people in our, each of our lives whose heart toward God is hard. It's cold. It's rocky. It's thorny. It's not good soil for the seed of the Word of God. These are people that are disinterested in God. These are people that you probably know better than to try to invite them to church. These are people that have told you either explicitly or implicitly, they're not that way. That way meaning Christian. And they don't want to talk about it. And so you walk on eggshells when around them. They're disinterested in God. Or if they have any interest in God at all, it's because they hate Him. They hate the idea of God. Perhaps sometimes these people that are, have such hard and thorny and rocky and, 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 and cold, hard ground of their hearts, perhaps they even mock God. Perhaps they mock you for having faith in God. The soil is where we're all different. The Word of God is the same. The devil's out there. He's at work. That's a given. Temptations in the world, that's a given. The pleasures of the world, that's a given. The, the, uh, the worries of the world, the riches of the world, th those are all givens. And the fruit, should it ever bear fruit... It will be a given as well, but the one thing that's different in every single person in your world is the soil of their hearts. Now, when we think about farming, because we're really talking about making disciples, we're talking about the very first step in making disciples. When we think about farming, there are three parts to farming. And I say this as a city boy, okay? Growing up, Lubbock, Texas was the smallest town that I ever lived in. We moved from Houston to Lubbock and then from Lubbock to Dallas-Fort Worth. I don't know the first thing about farming other than I can tell you that there are essentially three parts to farming. Let's start with the final part, the harvest, right? That's what everyone enjoys. That's what the farmers, the real farmers out there enjoy, the harvest. And when the harvest doesn't come in, it's a bad day. It's a bad year. But if the harvest is full and bountiful, no matter what they're growing, it's a good year. There's a lot of rejoicing. And so we have the harvest. That's the goal. But guess what? You can't have a harvest unless you first plant the seed. Planting the seed precedes the harvest. But guess what? You can't Plant the seed effectively unless you first 
work the ground. You have to plow the ground so that the ground is ready to receive the seed planted. And then the harvest will come. If you want a harvest, if you want to see the goal of bearing fruit, the hard ground must be plowed, must be dug up, and ready to receive the seed. When I talk about the hard ground, I'm not talking about cotton. I'm not talking about corn. I'm talking about the hard ground of people in your world who are disinterested in God. The people who have hard hearts toward God. Cold hearts. Cold as steel. Whose hearts are thorny. Prickly. Even if you talk to them about God. That hard ground needs to be plowed up. Now what I'd like for you to do. Is I would like for you to take this card. That you've undoubtedly looked at. And on the back part of that card. There's a section there that says disinterested believers. These are the people in your world. That need the hard ground of their hearts plowed up so that they might one day receive the seed so that they might then after become a harvest for Christ. Who are the people in your world that are far from God? What I'm inviting you to do, whether today, right now, in this room, and there are pens in the back of the pews in front of you, is to begin writing down the names of the people in your world that are far from God. Disinterested unbelievers. This card will be yours to take home with you, to place in your Bible, by your nightstand, whatever you'd like to do, on your refrigerator. These are people that might serve as a reminder. This card might serve as a reminder for you to pray for these people that are far from God. You know, the primary reason that we do not see a harvest of souls is because we do not pray that God would break up the hard ground of people's hearts. Because we do not pray. If we do not plow the hearts of the lost through prayer, it really won't matter how much of God's word we plant in their lives if their hearts are not ready to receive it. E.M. Bounds, a great man of prayer, once wrote, Around us is a world lost in sin. Above us is a God willing and able to save it. It is ours to build the bridge that links heaven and earth, and prayer is the mighty instrument that does the work. So I've got a question. Why is it that we do not pray for the people in our lives to be saved? Why is that? Maybe it's just a general prayerlessness in our lives. I mean... Maybe we don't pray for them to be saved because we just don't pray much about anything. Maybe that's it. Or, or maybe, you know, we're, we're somehow people of prayer, but, but that part, 
you know, we'll, we'll pray for uh, grandma and her big toe to get fixed. But actually praying for someone's eternity to be changed? We don't pray about that part because maybe we don't think God can actually save them. Maybe we've stopped believing that God can do the impossible. We see someone whose heart is hard toward God, they're cold, they're, they're icy toward God, and we just, ah, they'll never get saved. And so we give up on them. We, really, we're giving up on God to do a work in their, their lives. We don't believe that God can do the impossible and save that person. They're just too far gone, we think. And so we've lost faith in, in the power of God to do the impossible. Who knows why we don't pray more for the lost to be saved. I think one of the main reasons we don't pray more for the lost to be saved is because we don't see the lost like God sees them. We see lost people like, um, well, they're coming over for dinner at Thanksgiving or, or, you know, I see this person at work. That's a good guy. Nothing wrong with him. He's not much into church. That's how we see the, these people. But I want you to think about how God sees them. Let's look at how God sees them. Let's look at how they see themselves compared to how God sees them. People without Christ think, well, I'm just sort of doing my own thing, you know? But actually, they are captured to do the devil's bidding. According to God, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, if perhaps God may give them repentance leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Oh, no, no. Not, not that guy. He's a, he's a good old boy. Oh, not her. She's just sort of doing her own thing. Really? According to God, they're doing the devil's will. The lost do the will of Satan. According to God. People without Christ think, for example, that, that they're free. But actually, they're captives. In a strong man's house. Jesus said, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Satan is the strong man who has possessions. And the possessions that Satan has are your loved ones and friends who are disinterested in God. Satan's possessions are undisturbed. But... When someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Satan is the strong man, but Christ is the stronger man. People think they're free. I'm free to do my own thing. But they don't know. They're actually captive in a strong man's house. People without Christ think that they're making a clear choice, but actually they're under the influence of the evil one. Scripture says in 1 John 5, 19, 
we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think it's the King James Version that says it this way, that they lie in the sway of the evil one. The imagery here is that Satan himself has the loved one that's in your life, the friend, the co-worker, that shows no interest in God. And Satan is rocking and swaying that person to sleep like a baby. But we know the one holding that person has ill intent. They think they're free, making their own choice, or making clear choices. But they've never been under the influence more. People without Christ think that they are children of God. But Jesus said otherwise. They're children of the devil. In John 8, Jesus said, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The lost people in your life who cannot comprehend, cannot grasp the importance of what Jesus is saying, they cannot understand it. Why? Because they are of their father, the devil. People without Christ think they're alive. But the Bible says that they're dead. Dead in sin. Ephesians 2.1 talks about us. And you were, past tense, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. People without Christ think they determine their own lives, but actually they're empowered by Satan. The very next verse says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working. That demonic spirit is now working in the lives of the people that you care about whose hearts are cold toward God. Satan is at work. People without Christ think they can see. They think they can see clearly. But they're actually blinded by the devil. Scripture says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All of these seven scriptures describe very aptly a serious situation that lost people are in a bad bad spot spiritually according to the scriptures wouldn't you agree with that it does not have to stay that way God has decided in his incredible wisdom 
to allow us to be partners in ministry with him as he does a work that only he can do. We can help people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and it begins with prayer, praying for the ground of their hard hearts to be broken up. Here's what you can do. I would ask you to begin writing down, now or later, writing down the names of people in your world who are disinterested, unbelievers. These are people whose hearts are far from God. These are people whose hearts are cold. Hearts are hard. And I invite you to take this card with you. I invite you to keep this card in your Bible or keep this card in your, on your nightstand, on your refrigerator, wherever it might be, a reminder to you to pray for them every day. Pray for them every day. And if you think, well, I don't know if God can really do this. Let me tell you something. There are people in this room right now whose hearts were once hard toward God, cold toward God, but God did something in their lives. That is your testimony, many of your testimonies, that God has broken through with you, and He can do it again with others. And we want to join you in prayer. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. During the invitation, we're going to sing a song in just a few minutes. I'm going to invite you to come over to this table and take one of these pens. And there's a card here. It says, who are you praying for to be saved? And I'm going to invite you to put someone's name on there. I'm going to put my, my half-brother Steve's name on there. And put this card. There's a little jar right here. Put it right there in that, in that jar. And that way we can pray with you about the people that need to be saved. And then I'm going to ask you to do something that might sound sort of silly. But there's a reason for it. There's an orange ping pong ball here. I'm going to ask you to put that person's name or initials. I'm going to put SR for my brother, Steve Rhodes. Use one of the markers to do that. And put that ping pong ball in this display. Next week, not to spoil the surprise, but we're going to talk about planting God's seed. We're going to have a different color ping pong ball. And there'll be the people that you're sharing God's word with. And after that, the harvest. It'll be people that are ready in your life that you know are ready to be saved. We'll have a different ping pong ball color for that. And finally, the fourth week, we'll get to parenting. And that'll be people in your life that are new Christians that need someone to help them along and nurture them. So that's where we're going with this series. We'll have different ping pong balls. 
throughout the year, we're going to keep this display up. Through this series, it'll be here in the worship center. After that, it'll be in the lobby. We're going to keep this display up, keep this table out with the ping pong balls, and we're going to invite you to, when you have someone come into your life, someone that the Lord brings to mind, to let us know, and we're going to begin filling up this display with the people in our lives that we care about, that we want to, be, we want to see saved, and we want to see them once they're saved, we want to see them grow. And this will be a way for us as a church to begin to be intentional in making disciples of this world like Christ has called us to.